Uh, so First Samuel two eleven through twenty six. All right. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt; they did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man of offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for the roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat from the meat, or burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used, used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. <clears throat> and Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. They then, then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard something, or heard everything that his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. I will be continuing in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting with uh, verse 27, and we'll read through to chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> then a man of God came to Eli. And said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him 
out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me. And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father will walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Be far it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house, and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place. Despite all of the good which the the God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But many of your men, whom I do not cut off from my altar, shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hopney and Phineas, in one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him, for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions, that I may eat a piece of bread. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation, and it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down, in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call Lie down again, and he went and lay down. Then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again, The third time. So he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. 
Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning, and opening the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. And Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything. He hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Maybe you caught on with, with two people reading through the book of Samuel that we have a lot to cover today. So uh, I'd like to invite us to first start out in prayer, though. So why don't you bow your heads with me? Father, um, we deal with some text today that's personally convicted me. And I pray that because I'm convicted, and if any of us get convicted, that it would draw us closer to you. Because conviction is supposed to lead us to repentance, not to guilt or isolation or shame. And whenever it does lead us to repentance, I pray that it, it would not just be mere words and worldly grief, as Paul would point out. But words that lead to action, an action that we can do because you live in us. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin found through Jesus. And we thank you for the power to choose to obey you found in the Holy Spirit. Help us to be obedient. And Father, we meditate today on something very weighty, your word. So I pray that we would treat it as weighty as it is. And may you be the one speaking and not I. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe. 
Uh, I guess you're already seated. <laughs> Old habits and such. Um, before we dive in, I'm going to assume and have a major assumption and preconception to our text and remind us to have some lens to look over this passage. Peter calls the church a royal priesthood in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This means that what the Levites were in the Old Testament and the priests who come to the tabernacle and got to go into the Holy of Holies and Through Christ, you and I, every one of us, are given that role. In fact, the author of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's the language of priesthood, entering the holy places, something that priests could only do. Well, how do we enter the holy places? By the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. So, thanks to Christ, you and I can have a one-on-one experience with God. And because you and I are a royal priesthood, we can read passages like the one we are today and, and walk away not only seeing the narrative for the facts that they present, but we can also use the narrative to gauge and call our life to account. To read the warnings given to Eli's family and see the example of Samuel's obedience and then to examine our lives, as Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, I felt that this week, And through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So with that being said, we have a huge passage of Scripture, but a simple enough progression that the author of 1 Samuel has put it together with. We look at really three large segments. First, we have an introduction to two examples of priesthoods. Secondly, we will then see the rejected priesthood. And then we will see, thirdly, the responsive priesthood. Very easy enough. So first we have an introduction to two examples, and then we see the rejected, and then we see the responsive. Where we're at in 1 Samuel's narrative is really this. A man named Elkanah had two wives, Hannah, and the author tells us that he loved Hannah, but Hannah was barren. And then there is Penina who teases Hannah because Penina is giving Elkanah kids. So Hannah comes to the temple, the tabernacle at Shiloh, kind of a permanently fixed place for God. The temple in Jerusalem hadn't been built yet. Jerusalem is kind of a nowhere for the Israelites right now. But she comes to Shiloh. She prays for a child. In fact, she prays, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you, Lord. And then there's this old priest there named Eli, and Hannah's so desperately praying, she's crying. But then we're to wonder if Eli's ever seen such fervent prayer, because the first thing he thinks that she is doing is she calls her drunk. (laughs) And this is going to come up today, which is why I brought that up. But she explains how sad she is. Eli blesses her and says, well, may the Lord give you a son. The Lord does. His name is Samuel. We've been spending the last two weeks 
almost as if it was an opening credit scene to the movie of First and Second Samuel. That's kind of what James said in his studies, and I like that idea. But a, a song is playing, and I just imagine the names are being flashed up, starring Samuel, the last judge, starring Saul, the first king, starring David, the greatest king. But the song is really a song of Hannah's in response to having Samuel. And so instead of opening credits, we're actually being led into recurring themes of the books of First and Second Samuel. And also, I called them recurring themes of the kingdom of God as we studied Hannah's song. But now the proverbial opening credits are over. We're moving back to the narrative. We're moving back to Elkanah for a brief second. And then the author shifts the main character for the first time off of Elkanah and his family and really onto things that are happening in Shiloh. And we're introduced here at Shiloh to two examples of priesthood. Only one is already part of the priesthood and the other is actually a priesthood in the waiting. Let's read verses 11 through 21 and I'm going to actually take pauses for explanation and expounding so we're not going to read it all together at the same time. But verse 11 in 1 Samuel 2, first says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that is Samuel, was ministering. So in other words, he's doing priestly service to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Eli's kind of his teacher. Samuel is an apprentice. So here's the first introduction. This is Samuel, a priest in training under Eli. Now we're supposed to contrast that with the priests already. Beginning with verse 12, we read, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you would wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. I'm sure that's how he sounded. <laughs> Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Well, first, we were giving a charming introduction. They're worthless men. And uh, the phrase is actually an idiom, sons of Belial. Now, Belial is believed to either be basically what we might think of as hell or the underworld, or it could mean a word that just, it's the, basically the word is literally swallower as being swallowed into the grave. But you get the idea is that these men are from the darkest pits of hell itself is kind of the thrust of this phrase. <laughs> Well, why so? Well, then the author gives us an explanation that's probably lost in your ears. <laughs> Unless if you're completely familiar with the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And even if you did know those books, those books, the practice sounds altogether foreign because it is. Because likely they made it up themselves. <laughs> the sons of Eli did. In the law, priests are stipulated... Specific parts of the sacrifice to eat. Breast, right thigh, shoulders, internal organs, meat from its head. So you have a test on that tomorrow. No, just kidding. What is Eli's sons doing? 
Literally this. We'll stick a fork in the cauldron, and whatever comes up, that's ours. Right? Seems like you can watch what's being lowered in the pot. (laughs) And whatever's the tastiest, you might be able to try to stick it, is what they're doing. But we take it even farther. The ESV uses at the beginning of verse 15, moreover, kind of the way we might say, but what's worse is this. And then we're all, all we're hearing is the author get upset about cooking habits, right? Then they use margarine instead of butter. The horror is kind of what it sounds like. Well, this is actually a really big deal. Because the sons of Eli are requesting, in fact, they are extorting, verse 16, give us the fat or we'll take it by force. And it's not that Eli's sons had an obsession with meat fat that they're able to kill to get it, but rather they know why some of the Israelites would be unwilling to give the fat away. Leviticus 7.25 says, For every person who eats the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. There are other verses in the law that show this, but this verse is enough, isn't it? The Lord God Almighty demanded of his priests to always have the fat burned to him. And the text seems to suggest this, that maybe some of the Israelites themselves know that giving the fat to the priests is what you do not do. But here's the dilemma. We have the priests who we come to to mediate between us and God telling us to break the law. So you get the idea that the priests of Eli were just treating the sacrifice, just treating the meat, well, as just food. Just food. And here's where, where some might go. We might be continued to be baffled by the cultural context and differences, and we might say, I don't get it, it's just fat, it's just meat, it's just food. What's the big deal? Why is the author concerned about Why would God be concerned about this? When the Bible tells us over and over, God tells us over and over, it's not about the sacrifice itself. It's not about the meat itself. It's about obedience. In fact, Samuel himself later in the book will say to King Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Some of us get caught up in the directions themselves as opposed to who is saying them. How smart we are. For the sons of Eli, eh, good meat. They're minimizing, ignoring, diminishing that God Almighty has given the directions. He's not even in the equation anymore. He's not considered it's just good meat and I want some. What this amounts to is found in verse 12 where it said that they were worthless men and they did not know the Lord. That's the bottom line. The priests in God's people working for the temple did not know Him. It's not that they didn't know the law. It's not that they didn't know what to do, how to pray, and where they should be, and who they should be. It's just that they didn't know the Lord. This makes me wonder as a pastor. It brings me to examine myself. But I wonder, holy priesthood of believers, 
if we should examine ourselves, because I fear sometimes we think we know better than God. Go to church. I can find some sermons from pastors I prefer on the Internet, on the TV. I can read books from teachers I like. Read my Bible. I have other books, magazines, or TV shows I'd rather watch. And I've read the same old stories in the Bible, and I've read it through several times. Pray? Well, God knows everything in my head and my heart already. And we can justify, and we can minimize, and we can ignore until reading the Bible is something we do over only when we have a little bit of time left in the day. We can go to church, and it's something we tell ourselves we, we're rather good people if we at least do it once a month. And, and reading the Bible, well, we do that on Sundays, on the Sundays that we go to church. And it reveals this, and it begs the question of this, do we really know God? Because something tells me if we truly knew the Lord, He would be so glorious, so amazing, that we would be drawn to Him in these areas as well as others, not as things we had to do, but as things that we look forward to doing. The priests wanted meat. God was not in the equation for them. That's what it amounted to. Sadly, they were abusing a very holy position in order to get their meat. We're introduced to the other example of priesthood in Samuel now in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, what priests wear, just another reinforcement that the author is saying, hey, Samuel's a priest in training. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. And when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, that's showing us that, hey, mom's still involved. Verse 20, then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord so that they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we have we have priests who don't know the Lord. And then we have Samuel growing in the presence of the Lord. In fact, chapter three, we're going to see that Samuel, quote, did not yet know the Lord. No, in the experiential sense. But what we're seeing here is that Samuel is obedient with what he does know. We've been given a brief introduction of each. Obviously, the sons of Eli, there's a little bit more to say about. But now we're just going to see how Eli himself deals with his sons. And then we're going to see how the Lord deals with both Eli and his sons. Verse 22 says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And I just want to pause right here. Do you see the universal implications of these few sons' sins. All that his sons were doing to all Israel. Friends, you and I don't know where our sins affect. If you confess to be a Christian, do you realize that for every person, God, the faith you hold, is being put on display for everyone to see? We, what representation of Christianity are you giving? Besides taking what was rightfully God's in the offering, here's what Eli's sons, the priest of Israel, were doing. And how 
they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Exodus 38.8 records that there were women ministering at the tabernacle. We don't know what they were doing. We know that Deuteronomy 23.17 and 18 says prostitution is a sin. Don't let prostitutes hang around the tabernacle as happens in other pagan religions. And of course, we know the law forbids fornication, sex outside of marriage, of course. Eli's sons don't know God. That's what it comes back to. They're sleeping with other folks who should be doing God's work at the temple. So here's what Eli does about it. He gives them a lecture. Verse 23. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading a Broad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, I said Eli gave them a lecture in a sarcastic tone because we're going to find out pretty quickly that it wasn't enough, according to God. Eli still shares in their guilt. But, verse 25 continues, they would not listen to the voice of their father, For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now that sounds kind of harsh. (laughs) And whenever we read terms of God's judgment anywhere in the Bible, it's not that God is taking pleasure in the death of the wicked, so Ezekiel tells us. And it's not that God is doing it maliciously, thereby leaving the sons of Eli without any moral blame. Rather... Like the Pharaoh in Egypt who hardens his heart against God, therefore God hardens Pharaoh's heart as well. God's judgment is always to put the disobedient and sinful to death, ultimately. Lest they repent, and with God's foreknowledge, he knows that will not be the case with Eli's sons here. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, In other words, the judgment of God against ungodliness and righteousness is just apparent. (laughs) For those who do not see it apparently, Paul says, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. (laughs) By Eli's son's own disobedience, they suppress the truth. But as a reminder, the author shows us again Samuel. And if you know your Bible, it's almost verbatim a line that is shared in Luke 2.52 because... As Samuel is coming up in the ranks of a corrupt priesthood, so does Jesus in his time. We see in 1 Samuel 2.26, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And actually that's a verse that Calvin's remembering. That's just a little happy dad moment, sorry. (laughs) Then the author returns to the corrupt priests of Eli and his sons. Verse 27, And there came a man of God. This is the Old Testament way of saying, hey, here's a prophet. He came to Eli and he said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. So God is talking about Moses' brother Aaron here. That's where Eli descends from. Eli and his sons are Levites, the priestly line. 
So God continues, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the father, the house of your father, should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off the strength, uh, cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, he will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men, and that this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. What Eli did is approach and reproach his sons, but he didn't remove his sons. God takes sin Seriously, God takes sin seriously. Mark records for us Jesus saying in Mark 9, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So I wonder if you hear that. (laughs) Jesus is allegorizing to say, take desperate measures to ensure the sin is eradicated from you. It's that important. It's human nature. It's the sin nature, I suppose, because some of us are like Eli's sons, as I talked about, not knowing God, not taking him seriously. And then some of us are like Eli. And we say, well, I need to have a firm talking to that brother of mine sinning again. And it seems to me that that wasn't enough. A prophet's shown up at the door of Eli and said, you didn't manage your sons. You've honored them more than me, says God. Your sons are leading other Israelites to sin, and you think all that's needed is a little lecture. Some of us, myself included, have this nonchalant attitude, presuming on the grace of God more than we ought, as in confessing, feeling sorry, and then not repenting. And God is gracious and God is patient, but sin is severe and sin is serious. And Jesus says, take desperate measures. Cut things out of your life that cause you to be tempted. If it costs you money, if it costs you some sort of liberties, if you can't go to that place without sinning, if you can't have that food, that drink, that computer, that phone, whatever in your house without sinning, it's that important. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's the fall of Eli underestimating the severity of his sons mishandling God's sacrifices. Do you hear that? Because of Eli's son's sins and because of Eli's failure to manage his sons, we hear God say to Eli, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. 
And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, hopefully you know me by now. I believe Jesus is in the Bible everywhere. And to me, this really sounds like Jesus more than anything. A faithful priest doing what is in God's heart and in his mind. A house that's built sure, that's certain. We are the house of God. And he shall be God's anointed forever. That's the word Messiah. It just screams Jesus to me. But some see it as a more contemporary fulfillment for Eli's time. Some think it may be Samuel, a faithful priest. But he doesn't quite match the sure house because Samuel's sons end up being lousy as well. In 1 Kings 2, though, we actually have a verse telling us how these words are fulfilled. Solomon expels one of the last descendants of Eli from the priesthood, and the author actually adds there, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So it sounds like the case is closed. But we also know that many Old Testament scriptures had fulfillment, and then they had greater fulfillment in our high priest Jesus. Verse 36 And everyone who is left in your house, Eli's house, says the Lord, shall come to me to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. In other words, we see a reversal of fortunes. God is saying, Your sons want to get fat on food that was meant for me. Your family will end up being so famished that they'll beg for crumbs from the priests that are taking their places. That's what's happening here. So we've seen here what not to do, hopefully. As a priesthood ourselves, we've learned, let's not treat God lightly. Let's not look with contempt or ignorance or let's not belittle His commands or let's not treat um, sin so lightly that we think that all that is necessary is a few harsh words, a slap on the wrist, when we see even in the New Covenant, Jesus is telling us more than a slap on the wrist, cut it off if it's making you sin. Go to desperate measures. Sin is so real that I have to die for it. <laughs> now we see in our last examination in Samuel today, a response of priesthood. We see the calling of Samuel to his ministry. It's a familiar story, I'm sure. Look with me in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The author is giving us plenty of reasons as to why this is the case. The very priesthood and God's people are corrupt, mistreating sacrifices, sleeping around. And the only guy who could prove himself slightly better than the rest is just handing out wrist slaps to manage it. So we see in, in places throughout the Old Testament that this is a sign of judgment of God to not give his people vision. Because they're not listening to begin with. That makes sense. Why talk to a wall? <laughs> And so, God is about to show favor to Samuel. At this time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, and I should point out that commentators speculate that, yes, this is a physical ailment of Eli, but it was also representative of his spiritual state as a prophet. <laughs> the guy is a little blurry as far as God is concerned. Obviously, we were just told that God was not speaking and not giving any vision. <laughs> So Eli was laying down in his own place, the lamp of God. Now, we're told that the lamp would burn 
from evening through morning. And here in Samuel, we're told that it had not yet gone out. So it's probably in the middle of the night, maybe even early dawn. But also this could be another spiritual, spiritual reference that the voice of God hadn't completely left Israel. A lamp, such as in places like Psalm 119, is a symbol of guidance, his giving vision. So it could be that the lamp had not gone yet, out yet, and here's why. And Samuel was laying down in the, excuse me, in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. This is the first time that the ark is introduced, and we'll talk a lot about it later. <laughs> so we read in verse 4, Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. Then the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he didn't. Or, excuse me, but he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. So this is kind of like, it's about time, Eli. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, when Eli thought Hannah was just drunk, and when Hannah was actually praying fervently, we get this, e this idea that Eli is just, just not all there as a priest, to be honest. Then Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood, calling as, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. So this is a common plot device, repetition. And I believe it really happened, but also on paper it's supposed to show us, pay attention. <laughs> Something big is about to happen. This happens all the time with announcements and companies and, and bands releasing new music. Actually, on Facebook, I'm friends with lots of pages and companies. And I just think of recently, I'm friends with Microsoft. And whenever they announce a brand new device, I hate it because it takes like four weeks. But then they tell you every week, we got big news coming. And, oh, another teaser. Oh, and then finally you see what they're going to announce when the day comes. And that's the idea in 1 Samuel. While Samuel's trying to figure out who's calling him, the author already told us it's God from the get-go, and so we're supposed to be perking our ears up. We're supposed to be saying to ourselves, this is something new, this is something big, what's going to happen, what's God going to say? It's building tension. 1 Samuel 3.7 is a key verse here. Again, we were told back that the sons of Eli did not know the Lord, period. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Of course, he knew him in the ministering sense. He's been an apprentice of Eli, but he did not know him experientially. He did not know him as a prophet should, but he's going to become his mouthpiece. And so, the Lord, quote, came and stood to call him. I'm in the mind to believe John chapter 1, which tells us that when the Word becomes flesh... He does so in the person, in the form of Jesus. So it could very well be that Jesus has manifested himself to talk to Samuel. That's a big deal if God comes and talks to you in the flesh. It means that Samuel is favored and he's shown himself from a young age to be a tender and obedient heart. But that is about to be tested. We read in verses 11 through 14, And then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, 
I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is not necessarily a good tingling. (laughs) On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons are blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So that's a very hard first word for Samuel to receive, right? It's like the first day as a job, as prophet. Yay, I get to be God's mouthpiece. What do I have to say, God? Your teacher's got it coming. That's what. (laughs) Verse 15 Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors to the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and he hid nothing from him. And he, that is Eli, said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, if you're just holding out for Eli, right? Like, you're like, I really want to like Eli, Kevin, but you've been bashing on him all day. This is a verse to highlight. (laughs) This is a redeeming quality. Eli knows what's coming. He's already been told from another man of God, another prophet. And so when he hears it from Samuel, first of all, he knows that it meant... Samuel is tuned in with God. Like Eli's got to have a little pride. I did my job. Like it's got to be a weird but proud moment. (laughs) My apprentice is hearing from God, but then this is also a reminder, but I'm not tuned in with God. (laughs) So he is, though. That's good. But also this is yielding to God's sovereignty, even when God's sovereignty means discipline. Well, Eli, I I got really bad news for you and your family. And Eli is saying, if that's what God said, then I'm for what God's saying. And that's actually a humble attitude to have. It's a right attitude to have. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, Samuel was a true prophet. Everything he spoke actually happened. All And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. In other words, this is an antithesis, of you will, the opposite of chapter 3, verse 1, where the Lord was, uh, words of the Lord was rare and there was no vision. Because of Samuel's obedience and the Lord speaking through him, the reverse of Eli's sons is happening. Now all of Israel is hearing from God. So this was heavy stuff today. We are a royal priesthood. And I was convicted with comparing myself to the rejected priesthood. But it's a breath of fresh air to remind us that here's Samuel. And here's God showing grace and favor to his people through Samuel. And it's refreshing to see Eli simply accept the Lord's proclamation. And you and I might be challenged, and that's good. Sin is serious. We should take it seriously. And you and I might feel weight, and that's good. God's word is waiting. But I want to close this morning with where I started. We are a priesthood. We're told as much back in Hebrews 10. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, again, the language of priests, and how are we priests? That's our hope. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Friends, while we are priests, we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, listen to this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. For in Samuel was young and he grew in favor with God and people just like Jesus, and he became the mouthpiece for a corrupted nation. Jesus is our mouthpiece, and He found and He finds favor with God and people. And under Jesus we are saved, and under Jesus we are sprinkled clean, and under Jesus we are not only saved from the sins that we have committed, but we are also saved to sin no more. We are also saved to where we get to stop acting like Eli's sons, and we can start acting like Samuel. Amen? Because our high priest is faithful. He's faithful. Let's pray. Father, if I'm honest, I love to read the good parts of the Scripture. The parts where I get to rest. The parts where I'm saved. The parts where it's done and it's finished. And though those things are true, you didn't save us to just sit. You didn't save us to just wait around until we die and go to heaven. You didn't save us to be inactive. You've saved us to sanctify us, to purify us, to make us more like you and to be an example and testimony to those around us and to invite more people into the blessed hope we have found in you. Father, if we're honest, we're tempted to look at the weight of warnings and threats you've given Eli's sons and we feel that weight and Well, I can't measure up either. Well, actually, we can. We can measure up through the blood of Jesus. Father, you've died for those sins that we have committed, but you've also died to help us to sin no more. And I like what Paul says, that we have an option to present ourselves to disobedience or to righteousness. Disobedience leads to death, but righteousness leads to life. Help us to constantly present present ourselves to righteousness. And Father, help us to not fool ourselves into thinking that we can't measure up to where we go home and we don't repent. Rather, help us to know that we have the physical mobility to go home and to throw those things in the trash. The physical ability to go home and change habits. Doesn't mean it'll be easy, but we still have the ability and we have the power through the Holy Spirit. Help us to take sin as seriously as you do. And to not see it as removing enjoyment from our lives, but rather to freeing our lives up into freedom and more enjoyment into the source of true joy found in you. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.